been thinking. For a while now, I've been thinking, and sometimes I say to people, thinking can be dangerous, and maybe it can be, but I hope we can think together today and come to some better conclusions on some things that are really challenging a lot of people. What I've been asking myself as I've been thinking about that, that is, uh, or these things, is how do we solve a moral problem? Okay, if you have a moral problem, how do you solve that? Now, the, the moral problem I want to focus on, and I hope you're sitting down, brace yourself. I don't think this is too big of a challenge, but for some people, it, it's a little upsetting. Uh, I want us to talk about the problem of racism. How do we solve the problem of racism? And racism is a moral problem. There's no question about it. And the reason I've been asking this question is because so many of the solutions that I see people suggesting out there don't seem to be solving a moral problem. They seem to be based on race itself, as though a race-based solution can solve a moral problem. And I don't see how that adds up. For example, we've all heard the people talk about how if we just get the right jury verdict, and there's a number of those cases that have been going on, but it seems that we can solve this moral problem if we just get the right jury verdict. Hmm. Or there's been an ongoing conversation by a lot of people around the country about this idea of reparations. If we just had reparations, if we just gave people money, that would solve the problem. Well, putting aside the discussions of all of the issues related to that, I keep asking myself, how is that going to solve a moral problem? Because that sounds like a race-based solution. Or we've had for a long time these ideas of affirmative action. We've seen them play out in the workplace. We've even seen these kinds of things in admissions to universities. But again, I keep asking myself, how do we think that a solution based on some kind of race is going to solve a moral problem. It seems that whatever the situation, whatever the circumstance these days, we hear people talking and saying we need a race-based solution. That's what's required. That will make everybody whole. But I keep asking myself, how does that solve a moral problem? If the problem is at its heart an issue of right and wrong, and by moral problem, I mean that it violates God's law, that it goes against what God has told us to be true and right. How do we think that a solution based upon a racial remedy solves a problem of someone violating God's law? Or how do we say a race-based solution solves a moral problem? problem. You see, when, when someone violates God's law, we call that sin. That's the general name we use for it, that someone has sinned against God, and maybe, depending upon the sin, certainly in this case of racism, sinned against another person created in the image of God. So if we have this kind of a problem, why do we think a race-based solution solves the sin problem. And we want to talk about that today and think about how that might help us understand a solution to our country's problems 
if, if there is one, some people say there isn't one, I'm happy to, to say we're going to get to one. And it may not be popular with everyone, but it is a solution God has given us, and it does solve a moral problem. Well, welcome to this week's Faith Is. I'm so glad you joined us. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so pleased and honored that you would spend a little bit of time these days with me. And, and I want to welcome you, and on behalf of my church, Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, they are supporting my efforts to do this, and they want this to be a benefit to you. And I just want to give a quick shout out to them and, and thank them for all that they do to help make this possible. Because without support, you know, this we couldn't really do this. And we want you to know that this is for your benefit, and we hope you find benefit in it. Before we get into the rather heavy topic that I suggested for today, we want to make sure we recognize that this weekend is Mother's Day. And the Bible says very clearly in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, one of the Ten Commandments, honor your mother. So I hope you will this weekend. I hope you will honor your mother. And whether your mother is still with you or whether your mother has gone to be with the Lord, we can still honor our mothers. And we must because that command from God doesn't change whether our mothers are still living or whether our mothers are living with the Lord. We are still admonished to honor our mothers. And I want to make sure we understand a little bit about this business of honor. And then I want to tell you a story about some people who really went to important lengths to honor their mother. But when it says honor your mother, this idea of honoring our mothers is very similar to the idea in the Bible of honoring God. Now, make no mistake about it. God always comes first. That's clear. But this idea of honor really raises the level of how we should treat our mothers. And I don't know if you had a great mother. I did. So happy for that. Uh, we could talk about that. But this is not about me and that situation. It's about all of us and honoring our mothers because that's what God calls us to do. Mothers aren't perfect. I haven't found one yet. I don't think there's a mother alive that would say she is but I want us to realize that it's our responsibility, regardless of any of that, to honor our mothers because God has called us to do that. Now, this is really important because one of the things we don't often remember or realize is that in the ancient world, there was this concept of honor and shame. It was a very important, very significant part of the culture. And the idea was that a person wanted to seek or acquire honor and avoid any kind of shame, because that was the way the social order worked. You wanted to find a way to preserve your honor, to gain honor, and you wanted to avoid shame at all costs because of this idea of honor and shame. Very important to them. Very important to them. An illustration of that is something that you may have heard about, may have uh, read about. Uh, it's happened in the United States. It's happened overseas. Uh, a lot of years ago, I heard a missionary to the Indianapolis community talk about how there had been honor killings even in that community in this country. Well, you may have heard about honor killings, and, and an honor killing is simply when a family feels so much shame because of the actions of another member of the family that they decide it's better, and, and I realize this is a horror, so so I, I'm, I'm well aware of that, but we need to understand how important this business of honor 
is to our appreciation for God's command to us. So a family feels so much shame that they decide it's better to kill the offending member of their family and rid themselves, the whole family, of that shame. I mean, I, that is, that's inconceivable to us. I, I get that. You get that. We all understand that. But I only bring that up to, to help us realize how very significant it is when God says, honor your mother, how very important it is that we do that. So biblically, if we're going to honor our mothers, that means we defend our mother's honor or our mother's good name. We talk about the good things about our mother, not about the things that probably our mothers wish they had done differently. And, and, we, and we go from there. We, we live our lives to defend that. We want to preserve our mother's honor. We want to secure that, that vision of, of what she had done and who she is. We want to enhance people's understanding of her rather than tear it down. So that's the idea of, of honor. And we want to honor our mothers. Very important for us to do that. And I want to tell you a story about a, some sons who honored their mother just recently, just this week just this past week. And I want to read to you a post that uh, Harry Mehet put out to let us know about the story. Harry is an attorney for Liberty Council. He lives here in Southwest Florida. I've met Harry, talked to him. He's spoken at our church. And he's a champion for religious liberty. As one of the lead attorneys for Liberty Council, he's involved in litigation all across the country and defending our religious freedom. And he posts every now and then about some of the things that have happened and, and some of the things that they've done. And I just wanted to, to, to share this story with you about what just happened this past week. And Harry starts his post this way, vaccine victory in Michigan. Now, hold on. It's not about the vaccine, a little bit about the vaccine, but there's a mother involved. Don't be distracted. Vaccine victory in Michigan. Beaumont Hospital in Troy, Michigan prohibited a dear Romanian American family from visiting their critically ill mother unless they were vaccinated. So a little bit of context here. Now, this is a Romanian-American family. Harry himself comes from a Romanian-American family. I've heard Harry speak and tell the story on more than one occasion of how his father, a pastor in Romania some years ago, back when Romania was under the oppression of tyranny, his pastor at their church on Sunday would stand in the pulpit and preach. And the people would hear the sermon and in the back, monitoring what was going on in that church were the Romanian secret police. They listened to what he said. They paid attention to what he said. And as is the custom for many of us who are pastors, at the end of the service, we would walk to the back of the church to greet the people as they left to make their way home. And so Harry's father would finish the service and walk to the back of the church where the secret police who had monitored that service were waiting for him. And they often arrested him and took him off to jail. His family never knew when they would see their father again or if they would see their father again. Happily, he would be released usually a day or two or some days later. And some years ago, their family came to this country escaping the tyranny. And now Harry is as an attorney for Liberty Council is defending our religious freedom. He understands the risk and the problems of, of restrictions on religious freedom. So, and that's part of this story too. And it's 
and honoring the the mother in this story is part of it too. So anyway, that's a little context. So this this Romanian American family was prohibited from visiting their critically ill mother. Her sons had traveled collectively hundreds of miles to see their mother, not knowing how much longer she might be on this earth, and of course, wishing to spend precious time with her. But the hospital callously turned them away at the door, instructing them to get both COVID shots, and those are one month apart, by the way, wait two weeks after that, and then come back. From Harry's Post, the family explained that the vaccine went against their conscious and religious beliefs, and they weren't even sure if the mother would make it a day, let alone six weeks for the vaccine. You, you did add that up, didn't you? The hospital was saying, you've got to get these vaccine shots, and it's going to be at least six weeks because we'll consider letting you visit her. And here they are, not even sure if she will survive the day. Continuing from his post, they offered, this being her family, offered to wear protective equipment and do everything that the hospital had deemed sufficient for visitation just a few days before. They pleaded for compassion, and they were given none. They came to Liberty Council, and Liberty Council sent the hospital a legal demand letter on Monday evening, this last Monday, promising to file a lawsuit on Wednesday morning unless they immediately allowed the family to visit. The hospital's risk manager called Harry just last night, and he posted this yesterday, which would have been Wednesday. He posted this and said the risk manager called him to say that they had changed their minds. The sons will be visiting their mother, as he wrote this, this afternoon and will be allowed regular daily visits going forward. Harry concludes, praise the Lord for another quick victory. We are busier than ever securing freedom for people across the country. We appreciate your fervent prayers and we agree. What a great victory for those sons who wanted to honor their mother and thankfully they persevered. They weren't gonna let anything put them off or anyone put them off. They were gonna persevere so they could see their mother. That's honoring mother. That's hanging in there for freedom. And we need to commend those, those sons and Liberty Council for their work. I, I was privileged to hear Matt Staver, who's the president of Liberty Council, speak last week. And it is stunning the good work they have had to do to preserve liberty, religious liberty in our country. And I just want you to be aware of, of their good work and give thanks because without people like Harry Mehet, Matt Staver, without organizations like Liberty Council, our country would be in a very seriously damaged position because they have really helped. They have fought for preserving our religious freedom. And I wanna thank them for that and acknowledge that because it really, really does matter. So now let's get back to the, where we started. How do we solve a moral problem? And maybe another way to, to, to ask that question is, is how do we get to unity? How do we get from where we are with all of the divisions in this country, with all of the challenges, how do we get from where we are to where we need to be? How do we get to unity? You see, if we're going to solve the problem of racism, that's really what we want to have, isn't it? We want to find a path from the division we experience now to the unity that we hope is possible, no, we believe is possible. And we know that that 
solution, that path for unity really does go through the cross of Christ. And we're going to talk about what that means and, and how we get there. Now, we've defined the moral problem as racism, and, and it's, a, it's a horror. It's, it's well known that, that it's occurred. We're not, any of us, naive or at all beginning to think about how we would deny that, that there is a reality called racism. We understand that. What we want to begin to look at is to see how does this kind of add up in the current environment? How does this impact the current environment? And what are the solutions out there? And, and how can we understand it? Because it can be very complicated. But we want to try to keep it simple and try to focus on some things that will help us, you and I, come to grips with the idea and know how to go forward. Because I'm convinced there is a path forward. But in order to, to, to find the path forward, we have to understand the nature of the problem. So let's start with something that has uh, become a buzzword of sorts around the country and in a lot of conversations, and that's the idea of critical race theory. Now, you may have heard of critical race theory, and, and a lot of people have. And uh, when I first heard about it, maybe you felt the same way. You kind of shook your head and wondered, what in the world is that all about? Never heard of that. How, how could that be important? Um, I, don't, I don't know what that's about. And, and yet we hear it everywhere. We hear various descriptions of it. Uh, sometimes you'll hear somebody refer to critical theory. Sometimes you might hear somebody refer to critical legal theory. They're all out of the same thing. I want us just simply to focus on critical race theory today because we're talking about how do we solve a moral problem, a problem of racism, and, and how is this idea of critical race theory impacting the conversation? Well, as an introduction to the idea of critical race theory, let me suggest that for some people, they view critical race theory as a type of solution to the problem of racism. I'm not convinced that's right, but some people think of it that way. Or perhaps they view it as a lens through which to view our country, or in the larger sense, our world, but we're focusing on our country because that's where we see this happening and that's where we understand it best. Now, what I mean by a lens through which to view our country is, is it's, the, it's the ideas, it's the assumptions, it's the conclusions, it's the perspective that someone chooses to apply to the reality of life around them. So maybe we can start this way. I want to approach my understanding of the world and of reality through a Christian worldview. I want to see the lens or, or use the lens of the Bible to understand what is true and right, what is just, what is holy. And I want to use the lens of the Bible to see the world and understand the world, so that when I see events take place, I want to use what the Bible tells me is true to interpret and understand and then know how to bring solutions to those problems. When it comes to critical race theory, people use another lens through which to view the world and it colors everything they see. Uh, a lens, if it is a red lens, you're gonna see things and they're gonna look red. Well, the critical race theory idea has a lens and when people look through that lens at the world, then everything is seen through that understanding. And it begins to affect and infect everything that they see and do, and it becomes pervasive. Its tentacles, you might say, affect so many things and, and nearly everything. So some people view it as a type of solution. I don't 
think that it is a solution, but some people might think of it that way. So we need to be honest to, to give them uh, space in our understanding and not be disparaging of that. We can disagree, but we need to understand that. Same way with if it's a lens, a, a worldview perspective, we need to realize that when they see through that, that in some senses they're blinded to other perspectives because they've, they've adopted that worldview. And, and it doesn't mean they are blind, it just means that that's what they have chosen to see. And we need to recognize that and be honest about that, respect them for their perspective, even though we disagree. Or the third way I wanna suggest that people might think about critical race theory is a means to Marxism. In so many ways, critical race theory appears to be, and even more than appears to be, can arguably be uh, described as a means to Marxism. So that's a pretty serious framing of all of that. And, and I want to give you a little bit more information about that and, and encourage you, if, if you're not aware of this, there's a publication that Hillsdale College does. Hillsdale College is located in Hillsdale, Michigan. And every month they release a, a publication called Imprimis, I-M-P-R-I-M-I-S, Imprimis. Every issue of Imprimus is, is full of insightful observations and ideas and helpful things to help us navigate the world around us. I highly recommend that you go to the website and you can do a, an internet search and find them and subscribe to, the, to Imprimus. You can get it by electronic means or they will mail it to you. But this past month, March, I guess two months ago now, March of 2021, they had an issue on critical race theory. The title of the, of the issue is Critical Race Theory, What It Is and How to Fight It. Now, I don't wanna go through the entire article. It's excellent. You can benefit greatly from it. I, I highly recommend it. Go out and find it and read it. It will help you understand critical race theory better. But I wanna use this article to, to highlight a few ideas so that we can begin to understand critical race theory and what it means for solving a moral problem, uh, the moral problem of racism. So it all started with Marxism. Uh, the political left developed this idea of Marxism and it was built on a program of class conflict. You may remember hearing about that. The idea was that uh, the workers and the sometimes they say capitalist or the owners of the businesses were at odds. And that according to Marxism, they believed that the solution to that was a revolution because there was an imbalance. They believed that the workers were treated badly and the people who owned the businesses, what they called capitalists, were profiting unduly from the workers' work and that there was an abuse of the workers. And they believed that the way to solve that imbalance was to have a revolution. And so they wanted to encourage that revolution where the workers would take over all of the means of production. They would overthrow the capitalists, the owners of the businesses, and usher in a socialist society that would become a worker's paradise. You'll sometimes hear that phrase. Well, a number of countries tried that. In the 20th century, and century, a number of countries tried this Marxist-style revolution you may remember that it took place in the Soviet Union, in China, in Cambodia, in, in Cuba. I mean, there were many, I, I've read up to 70 countries in the world tried the, the uh, experiment 
of socialism and became socialist countries. Well, in every single place where it was tried, it failed. Not only did it fail, it failed badly. It resulted in a body count of over 100 million people from these countries being killed. It resulted in gulags. It resulted in show trials and executions and mass starvations. These Marxist ideas as they were implemented in these countries around the world really showed us the darkest side of brutality of people against people. And so everybody began to recognize because it had failed everywhere it was tried that there was a problem. Now, a few people, and you may hear this, a few people say, well, all of those other countries, they just didn't get it right. We'll get it right in the United States. I've, I've heard that. You may have heard that too. I can't for the life of me figure out how they believe that a failed ideology, Marxism, can be gotten right. If it's failed wherever it's been tried, how do we think we can get it right, whatever right is in their ideas? But anyway, continuing on a little bit of the history. In the mid-60s, the people who were Marxist and adopted this Marxist ideology began to realize that it really was a failure. And, and they realized that this idea of a workers' revolution would never occur in Western Europe or the United States because people were doing so well. They didn't believe they were being abused by by the capitalist class. They thought they were doing fine. And so they rejected that idea. Well, in order to advance their ideas to bring about what they would think of as a socialist paradise, they began to realize that they would have to find a different way to introduce this Marxist-based idea. And so they began to adopt and adapt their revolutionary ideas to racial unrest during the 1960s and to the social uh, upheaval that was going on there. And so they began to pit people instead of the capitalists against the workers, they began to substitute race for class and they tried to get people at odds. And so we had all of the, all the race discussions and upheaval that we've seen over the years. And it's all because people began to try to, to frame this supposed utopia called Marxist paradise in the terms of, of race instead of in terms of classic workers against capitalists. Well, that didn't work out so well because the country responded to some of those concerns with legislation that, that eliminated those ideas or those concerns. We had a, a man named Martin Luther King who, who rose up and challenged people on a whole different level because he realized that it wasn't about those things. It was about character. It was about morality. And Martin Luther King appealed to the country's sense of right and wrong. And so we had a lot of reform that challenged the leftist ideas. Well, they weren't finished. Uh, people who are ideologues, they don't, they don't just go away. They continued their efforts and they formulated in the 1990s this idea that we now call critical race theory. And it was built on the same identity-based Marxist framework that I just described from the 60s. And it has become the default ideology of our day. It's in many public institutions, it's in schools, it's in a lot of places, and it's become all, all but the only accepted way to see the world. Now, we're going to get a little farther into this to help us understand that. And one of the things that, that we want to get to just before we take a break is to realize that 
a lot of this idea of critical race theory is framed in euphemisms and in the use of language in a creative sense to help people think that it's something that it isn't. So we'll hear people talk about equity, social justice, diversity and inclusion, culturally responsive teaching. It's, it's using language to try to convince us of something and make us think it's something it isn't. It's confusing. If you, if you think it's confusing, I've got good news for you. You're right. It's confusing. So they'll use a word like equity, which sounds good and sounds non-threatening, but it confuses people, it confuses us, because we think of the principle of equality. And we value equality. We value it as a people. We value it as Christians. I mean, equality was proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence. It was defended in the Civil War. I mean, we have laws, the 14th and the 15th Amendments, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, all of those put in law the idea of equality. Now, to be sure, critical race theory proponents, they reject those ideas as flawed and not appropriate, and they want to say something else with their use of the term equity. And again, if you're confused, don't be concerned. It is a confusing thing. They use the language to confuse us, but we refuse to be intimidated by language. We're not going to let words intimidate us. I often say to people, just because it's a word you haven't heard before doesn't mean you can't understand it. Don't let words get you down. Don't let words distract you. And we're going to take a look in the next few minutes after the break of this idea of equity and explore these ideas of critical race theory a little bit further so that we can understand. And then we're going to say, is there a solution to a moral problem? And we're going to affirm, yes, there is. So don't go away. Join us back after the break. We'll be here with solutions to this problem. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. And it's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. 
subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Stevens. I'm so glad you've joined us today on Faith Is. I hope you enjoyed that break. We probably all needed that. If your head is spinning trying to wrap your mind around this idea of critical race theory, join the club. A lot of us are struggling with that because it's a new idea and the ideas are so foreign to our understanding of life and people that it's really hard to grasp that that people actually adopt this and believe it and advocate for it, but they do. And so we need to understand what's going on here so that we can can help people find a real solution to the real problems that our country faces, to the real problem of racism, which is a moral problem and can't be solved by a race-based solution or any other solution. So we left off, we were talking about and using this article from Imprimus uh, entitled Critical Race Theory, what it is and how to fight it. It was written by a man named Christopher F. Rufo, and I hope I pronounced his name correctly. I, I'm not certain about that, but it's an excellent article, very much worth your time. And we're talking about critical race theory and trying to understand it. And we've understood that that is it's an ideology that people have adopted. It's everywhere. It has gotten into all of our schools, into their curriculums. It's in the government offices. It's in businesses. It seems that it's everywhere. And they use these interesting words and sometimes words we're not familiar with like social justice and diversity, inclusion, equity, culturally responsive teaching. They, they use language to convince us of something and maybe to confuse us. So let's, let's continue on. We were talking about equity. Now, the way they use that word equity is not like we use our word and our principle of equality. They understand it differently. And really it's little more than reformulated Marxism. For example, one of the proponents of critical race theory has argued that we need to suspend private property rights. So that means you, I, nobody would own anything. You think you own a home, they would suspend that. Now that's, that's, we say, well, that's silly. We say that the Bible says, Thou shalt not steal, and that points to property rights, it does. Any two-year-old knows property rights. Have you ever tried to take something away from a two-year-old who has quickly learned the word mine? Well, they're saying we need to suspend property rights, and even more, that we need to seize all land and wealth. And now here's the key. Once they've seized land and wealth, we need to redistribute it along racial lines. Now, see, that betrays the problem right there, doesn't it? It's not about solving a problem. It's about redistributing wealth to people that they believe have been mistreated and that they want to now make whole by harming others. So we need to kind of come to grips with this idea and we need to wrestle with the solution to that. And that's where I want to turn now. And let's talk about how do we see the solution? For a long time now, I've been saying to people that the way forward in our country for many of our problems is we need to realize that God gives us the solutions and we need to focus on God's solutions because they are the answers to our problems. And so when we come to these kinds of divisions where people are divided by race, we should remind ourselves that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, 
the writer of Galatians says very plainly that there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Now, Jew or Gentile, those were the big divisions of that day. And so they were saying, in Christ, there's not Jew or Gentile. They go on, neither slave nor free. And that was a big deal. Slavery was endemic in ancient times. We think it's a, a horror, and it is, and we think it's an exception, and it should be. But in ancient times, it was just the way it was. And so here the writer is saying that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So it points to a vision of, of unity, of people coming together, not of people being separated. And so we want to think about how that is possible and how that is, that is something that we as followers of Jesus can help achieve, how we can live out in the world that that is all around us and struggling for help. And so we want to take a look at the Bible and see what we can learn from that. And I want to draw your attention to the first epistle of John, chapter 5. There are a few verses I want us to read there that will help us understand what it is that God says is a solution, the solution, to all of this division that we see around us, particularly as it's related to race. First John chapter 5, verse 1, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So there you have it. We who are followers of Jesus, we who are born of God, we who love the Father, love the Father's children as well. And it makes no exception. It means everyone. Everyone is, is subject to and the beneficiary of our love. He goes on, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So let's think about that a little bit. Scriptures talk to us about how, how Jesus and the Father are one, and the Father loves Jesus, and Jesus loves the Father, and there's a unity to that. And then Jesus invites us into that, because when we're born of God, then we love the Father, and we love the Son, and we are invited into that unity that's characterized by love. And that part of what characterizes that unity is a love for all of the children of God. Now, people say, well, does that mean just followers of Jesus? Well, it does mean followers of Jesus, but think about it this way. Who does it exclude? If we understand that everybody is created in the image of God, then how can we exclude anyone? Because in a certain sense, all people, as people created in the image of God, are God's children. And so we're called to love one another and to bring that unity to bear on the world around us. And so we carry out God's command by expressing love. And we talked about last week that this idea of love is, is obedience to God. So when, when Jesus invites us to love, then we realize that that's what we're supposed to do. And so we follow his command. And love is shown in our lives by the same attributes of Jesus, by self-giving. We give ourselves away. We don't act selfishly, but we work for the well-being of the people around us. And it's interesting that it admonishes us over and over in these few verses to keep this command to love God. In fact, the, the final verse 
of, of this section that I want to call our attention to admonishes us that, that God commands us to love one another, and, and we need to do that. It's also interesting that it says here that his commands are not burdensome. Burdensome, that's an interesting word, and, and I've been working on that and thinking about that. Uh, what's this idea of burdensome? Well, the, the idea of burdensome is not the same as the idea of easy or hard. Uh, I don't think we want to think of it in terms of easy or hard. Uh, our discussion group that meets on Wednesday evenings here at our church, we've been going through C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, and we've been talking about it. We talked about it just the other night. Is following Jesus easy or hard? And you'll, you'll laugh along with me when you, when you hear me say, I, I think we concluded it was both. Sometimes it stretches us because we get in patterns of behavior. We've made up our minds a certain way, and along comes Jesus and says, hey, wait a minute, you need to be this way. And so we need to stretch in his direction. And sometimes, uh, many times, stretching is challenging. It's hard. And so in that sense, it's hard, but, but somebody else in the group said, but it's easy, it's liberating, it's freeing. There's, there's so much uh, joy and freedom in, in following, it's, it's, it's easy. Well, so there's a little bit of the contrast, easier or hard, but you notice that the scripture that I read in verse three, it says it's not burdensome. It doesn't say easy or hard. And so I looked into that a little bit, and this idea of burdensome is equivalent to the idea of it's not oppressive. In other words, it's not something that weighs us down. It doesn't mean we might ha not have time that we need to stretch because God challenges us, but it is saying it's not a heavy load, it's not oppressive, that, as one writer said, when we keep God's commands, it releases us to the freedom and spontaneity of love. And, and that's a pretty amazing thought, that we could be released to the freedom and spontaneity of love. That's, that's good news, I think. That's something that we should pursue. That's a solution to a moral problem, to love our neighbors. And, and that's the great commandment that Jesus gave. That's the Shema from the Old Testament wrapped up in one command in Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 29, where he says we need to love God with all that we've got our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the, the pinnacle of what God calls us to. And, and here John says it's not burdensome keeping God's command. It's a freedom to the spontaneity of love. And it also says that we can overcome the world. Take a look again at, at that passage in the scriptures, 1 John chapter 5, and, and look at what it says in verse 4. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Now that sentence is completing, is completing what starts in verse 3. And so let's go back to verse 3 and just put the context together with that so we can really grasp what's going on here. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. We've just talked about that. And his commands are not burdensome. They are freeing and liberating. They are not oppressive. His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So, 
we face this ideology, this perspective, this means to Marxism called critical race theory, and along comes the Bible and says, though the world is all caught up in this, and it seems to be, at least in our country, all caught up in this, the Bible says that we can overcome the world, that everyone born of God overcomes the world. I mean, people are, are beginning to, to be in despair over this idea of, of, of critical race theory. How do we deal with this? How do we get that out of the, of the schools, of the public consciousness? How do we get away from it because it's so threatening to us and so potentially harmful? And it is all of those things. Well, here along comes the Bible and says that here's a way to overcome the world. So how do we overcome the world? Well, we keep God's commands because that's clearly in the context here. And it says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now, that idea of faith is important for us to unpack. And we have talked about that a bit in the past. And, and I've reminded all of us that, that this idea of belief or faith, and it's the same idea here, is not some abstract concept. It's a concrete reality that we can wrap our minds and our actions around. The idea of belief or faith is really rooted in the concept that we need to change our lives. Now, how do we change our lives? Well, in this context, we change our lives by loving our neighbor, because that's what it says here, that we love the children of God. We love all the people. And so rooted in the solution to a moral problem is to realize that we can change our lives and we can behave differently. See, our faith is made visible by concrete action. How does God know you believe in him? By your concrete action. How do you demonstrate to people around you that you believe in God, that you have changed your life? By your concrete action. Let me give you a simple idea about this. I go on about this all the time just because it's so accessible and because it's become such an issue in our days. One of the ways you show that you believe in God is you go to church on the weekends. You show up. You say to heaven and earth, this is so important. I've got other things I could do, but I'm going to honor God and put him first by attending church. And you do it every week and you don't let anything crowd that out. That's changing your life because it's different from everybody else, and it's putting your belief into concrete action. So this idea of belief is changing our lives, and in whatever level God calls you to change your life, that's what we do. And then we realize that that second part of that is we change our lives, and then we give allegiance to Jesus. We put him and his teachings first. We've come to rely on the love that God has for us, and that's what we aim to do day by day, week in and week out, to let everybody know that we put him first and we rely on God's love. And one of the ways we do that, and one of the solutions for that is to realize that, that we forgive our neighbors and we reach out to them with the love of Christ. Last week, we talked about the idea of forgiveness, and I challenged us that that's the solution because the Bible teaches us that in Christ, all of the sins of the world were dealt with. They were all taken care of on the cross. They were all canceled, broken, destroyed. And, and isn't that a good word, canceled, in our cancel culture? Isn't it nice to know, <laughs> and can we steal that idea, that sins were canceled by Jesus because he took on himself all of the things on the cross? So 
So because he did, he solved every moral problem because a moral problem is sin, and he broke the power of that sin so that it no longer needs to rule over people and in our lives or anyone's life because he took care of it. And that's the solution. That's bringing justice to the problem. Because people sometimes say, well, well, all of this stuff resulted in a lot of a lot of disparity, a lot of injustice. Well, guess what? Jesus made justice whole at the cross because he realized it was all sin and it all needed to be taken care of. And he atoned for all of that sin on the cross. And so we can forgive our neighbors and walk in newness of life. And that then becomes the life that overcomes the world because we live free of all of that, liberated from all of that, and faithful to follow the one who is the Son of God and who came to make the world right, and who one day will make all of these wrongs right. And we begin to overcome the problems in the world. We bring a moral solution when we say, Jesus, the one who told us right from wrong, took on himself all of the wrong and destroyed that with his death on the cross. And that gives us hope and, and a future and victory both now and later. And so that becomes the moral solution. The moral solution is found through the cross of Christ because he took care of all of the sin that results from a moral problem. And, and that's really colossally good news, don't you think? That's just remarkably good news that we all should celebrate. And I hope you will, because we can participate in what God is doing by our decisions to change our lives, to follow Jesus, and rely on the love God has for us. Give allegiance to Jesus. Now, this idea of obedience is, is important because some people get a little caught up in all of that. And, and I want you to understand that, that the reason for obedience, I found this idea when I was working on this, the reason for obedience is, is not so much because it's a, it's a heavy command for us, but obedience is as, as one writer said, obedience is not what makes believers Jesus' friends, but what characterizes Jesus' friends. So we who are Jesus' friends need to realize that we follow him because we are his friends, not because we're longing to become his friends, but it demonstrates that we are his friends and we are going to be faithful to follow him. So as we review all of this, we've, we've talked about a number of things. We've looked at the idea that we need a moral solution to a moral problem. And I suggested that so many of the solutions we hear about seem to be rooted in, in a racial solution to try to solve some racial inequality of one kind or another. And I suggested that, that we really can't solve a moral problem by some kind of racial solution. That's just impossible. It just doesn't connect. That if we're gonna have a moral problem, a problem that God says is right or God says is wrong, then we need to fix it based upon God's rightness and wrongness. And he solved that by dying for all of the wrongs in the world so that we could be forgiven and free of those penalties and we could live a new life based on moral right and moral wrong, moral right and avoiding moral wrong. We've talked about critical race theory and we've talked about how it's a, some people think a type of solution, a, a, 
maybe a path forward for the racist problems. I'm not really sure that that the people at the heart of that think of it as a solution. I think that's a tactic when they try to help us think that's a solution to it. I don't believe that's the case. We talked about how it's sometimes thought of as a lens or a worldview, a way of seeing the world around us, of understanding or making meaning out of the world around us in the same way that we who are followers of Jesus, we make meaning out of the world around us because we look at what the Bible says. And so we understand that that people are broken and flawed because sin entered the world uh, in the same way they look at the flaws of the world based on racial disparities or divisions between people. Uh, we, we don't see it that way. We see it as the Bible says, here's the reality. But to give them a fair hearing, we understand some people view view the world through that lens of critical race theory. So we want to understand that so that we can respect their perspective and, and provide a good answer to it. My particular conclusion in all of this is that uh, I'm convinced that this idea of critical race theory is not at heart a solution to things or a lens to view the world. I think at heart, it's a means to bring Marxism to our country. And it's, and it's a, therefore a threat to our religious liberty, to our ability to faithfully follow Jesus so that we have the opportunity to serve him in the way we want to. And so we've come to the conclusion that a moral problem has to be solved with a moral solution. And we found that again. Make sure we understand this. Make sure we share this with our friends. A moral solution is found in what Christ did at the cross in breaking the power of sin and crushing evil at that point so that it does not need to affect and infect us anymore. He broke the power, as Wesley's hymn says, of canceled sin. And isn't that a great thing? In our cancel culture, sin is canceled because of what Jesus did. I think that should be a new slogan someplace, don't you? Because Jesus broke the power, and now, because of that, that we're no longer divided. As Galatians says, we're no longer divided there it says Jew and Gentile. We're no longer divided by any racial thing. We're all united because of Christ. We're not divided because of being slave or free. Slavery is a horror. It always has been. It still is. It's practiced in too many places, people tell us around the world. But the Bible says because of what Jesus did, we are now united, and we don't separate ourselves from each other based upon being Jew or Greek or any other race or being slave or free or any other vocational or status in life. We are all united because we come together in Christ. We, nothing, nothing at all sh should separate us from each other. That's the point of that statement. I mean, we're, we're even seeing with, with the gender stuff, people separated over male and female. Let's not let that separate us. Let's realize that, that we come to Christ understanding the reality that God created us male and female, but one is not better than another. We're all united in Christ, and we need to come together around that idea. For that is the path forward. That is the path from division to unity, and it goes right through the cross that canceled sin and gives us newness of life, and that is worth celebrating. So remember your mother this weekend, give her the honor she is due. Remember, we are to honor our mothers in a similar way to the way we honor God. And make sure you honor God. 
you haven't planned to attend church, find a church that believes the Bible. Remember, you don't need to go to the closest church. You need to find the church that's closest to the Bible and, and show up there and be faithful, be a part, be a participating part in that. Because by doing that, we are demonstrating that we have faith in God and we can depend upon him to make the wrongs right. And by our actions, by our behavior, we're going to be part of the solution, never part of the problem. We're not going to retreat from the problem because God in Christ gives us the moral authority to attack the problem and to resolve the problem and invite everyone to meet together at the foot of the cross, we used to say and could still say, where we're all equals and where we're united because the power of Christ cancels sin and we do not have to be separated by anything anymore. So let's gather together. Let's change our lives. Let's continually stretch in the direction that Jesus calls us. Let's recognize that we are God's people, and he is leading us in the right way, and he will lead us to successful solutions to even life's most difficult problems when we follow him and understand his solution to our problems. So I hope you will gather yourself together, head off to church, demonstrate your faith, stand up for what is right and true, live in a confidence that one day Jesus is going to make all of the wrongs right, and we live now in that reality and in the hope that one day he will make all things new while he is today making us new. And so we realize that faith really is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we can trust him because he's trustworthy. So I say, keep the faith. It'll keep you. And let's follow Jesus all the way home. I'll see you next week.